want to ask the rest of you, if you would, open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be taking a break this morning from our study in 1 Peter to go back to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Be looking at verses 19 through 25 in a message I've entitled, Entering the Holy Place. See, we've come together this morning in a sense to enter into the very presence of God. And uh, I think sometimes that's a, a reality that as Christians, sometimes we forget the great privilege that we have to enter into the very presence of God. And I want to take some time this morning just from this passage in Hebrews, just talking about that significance. I want to give you a little bit of background on the book of Hebrews as we start this morning. This book was written specifically to the Jewish people. That's why it's called Hebrews. Um, It's to the Jewish people in order to demonstrate the superiority of the new covenant in Christ over the old covenant of the law. Throughout the book of Hebrews, Jesus has demonstrated to be better than the angels and more worthy of glory. He is shown to be a greater high priest. He is shown to be the ultimate rest, the satisfaction of the law, the king of righteousness and of peace. He establishes a new and better covenant built on better promises through the sacrifice of himself, which was superior in every way to any sacrifice before him. His sacrifice being a perpetual sacrifice, that is a once-for-all sacrifice to take away sins. He is the fulfillment of all the promises of God that, was made, that were made to Israel. And as we see through this letter, the writer of Hebrews is passionately demonstrating through biblical texts, through the Old Testament, how Jesus has fulfilled the law and is the final rest for all who come to Him by faith. It's all been accomplished through Christ's sacrifice for us. A reality that is pictured for us and that we remember in the celebration of the Lord's Supper as we think about the breaking of His body and the pouring out of His blood for our sake. It is those realities that emphasize what Christ accomplished on our behalf and what privileges we gain through that sacrifice. Our text this morning establishes the perfection of that sacrifice as Jesus has granted us permission to enter the most holy place, which is the very presence of our God. What a glorious reality to think. I mean, how often do we think about our ability to enter into the presence of God? I mean, we think about entering into the presence of God a lot of times just in the sense of, well, we know He hears us when we pray, so, you know, we just kind of throw our prayers up and we just hope, you know, He's listening and we don't really take time to think about what it means to enter into God's presence, which is a whole lot more, as we'll see this morning, than just praying. Entering into the presence of God is meant to be so much more than just praying. It is, well, I'm not going to give it to you yet, but we're going to get there in here just in just a moment. You know, we've, we've been told that we can come to God with anything and at any time. And that's true for all who have been born again. All who are born in the blood of Jesus can come to God with anything at any time. But that doesn't mean that we still don't need to come with reverence, that we still don't need to come with respect, that we still don't need to come in recognition of who we are coming to. We need to remember who it is that we serve and who it is we're bringing our requests to. And it's, a, it's just an awesome reality for us to understand this freedom to enter into the holiness of God's presence. It's no small matter to be taken for granted. So let's look at this together this morning. I want to ask you to stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's most holy word. 
Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to gain understanding into the truths revealed, and that we might draw near to you this morning, and that we might forever, as we walk in your truth, and as we walk according to your spirit, that we might recall these truths, and that we might seek your face more earnestly and expectantly and reverently. And we ask, Lord, that you would just help us to apply what we learn here today to our lives as you conform us to the very image of Christ. It's in his name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> this passage comes to us as a critical point in the entire book of Hebrews. The writer has been laying out many doctrines concerning Christ, that is, who He is and what He came to do. And now he begins to change the emphasis, not on just the truths concerning Christ, but how they affect us as His followers. That is, the application of doctrine to our life. As we look at verse number 19, it begins with that word, therefore. And you've seen the significance of that in other texts. And it, and it is a linking word that tells us that it, it connects what's being said with what has gone right before it. Specifically in verses 11 through 18, Christ has been demonstrated to be the superior offering. That there's no longer an offering needing to be made for sin at the temple because Christ's offering has settled the matter once and for all. He has satisfied God's wrath against sin for all who call upon Him. And that satisfying of God's wrath is what allows us to enter the holy place, to come into the very presence of God. That is a reality that was not available to the audience being written to previous to Christ's coming. You couldn't just go into the holy place. You couldn't, you couldn't go, I mean, only certain people were even allowed into the temple complex at all. And, only, and then only priests were allowed into the holy place in the temple, and then the most holy place, the holy of holies, only the chief priest could enter once a year through the, through the making of a sacrifice to atone not only for himself, but to atone for the people for the, for their sins. And yet, through Christ, we are given free access into the presence of God. That is an, an amazing reality that is captured for us in this text, that Christ's sacrifice is, is the all-sufficient sacrifice. But what specifically is the significance of entering the holy place for us, other than it was something that was not available before. What does that access give us that we don't have apart from it? A lot of times, as I said earlier, that we think about entering, entering the holy place. Well, that's a place where we go, that we enter into God's presence to pray, right? But I mean, throughout the Old Testament, people prayed and God heard them and God answered, and they weren't in the holy place when they prayed. People, you can pray anywhere. You don't have to enter into the presence of God to pray because God is everywhere. He hears everything. He knows everything. And He knows every need even before we speak it. Because He's God. So there's got to be something more significant than just God hearing our prayers when we talk about entering the holy place. There, and there is something more significant. And I, wanna, I want you to consider a, a couple of things uh, before we actually get into the meat of our text. And that is... First of all, they recognize that the holy place was a place of forgiveness. 
It's where the sacrifices were offered for the forgiveness of sins. So when we enter into the holy place, we are coming before God to seek forgiveness of sins. And it is granted to us and applied to us through the blood of Jesus in the presence of a holy God. The holy place also is a place of fellowship with the Lord. It is where the Lord reveals Himself, but it is also where we are revealed before Him. If you want to look at a perfect example of that, go back and look at Isaiah chapter 6 and the vision that Isaiah had of God filling the temple and him crying out, woe is me, for I am undone. He was revealed before the Lord. When you enter into the holy presence of God, you are revealed for what you are. There is nothing hidden from his presence. Every sin, every thought, every dark spot in your life is made known. The holy place, as we'll see here in a minute, it was a place that the Israelites understood to be a place of death, a place of fear, because you couldn't enter into the presence of God, because our sins deserved punishment. And if you've spent some time in the church and you've heard about the temple and you know some of the practices that the high priests went through when they would enter the most holy place to make sure that, first of all, they went through a whole series of cleansings and prayers and sacrifices in order to sanctify themselves so that when they entered into the presence of God, they would not die. And then even when they went in, they still, they still tied a rope around them in case there were some something unconfessed, some sin unknown that God revealed and God killed them. I don't know of any instances where that happened, but I know the history of the people and how they would approach that. And then how many times when you look through Scripture do you see not just manifestations of God, but manifestations of angels from the presence of God in which people felt like they were going to die? from having seen the glory of God. Because to be exposed to the holiness of God is to be confronted with all the reality of who we are apart from Christ. And that is a scary, a scary place to be. But in our text this morning, we're going to see not fear, but glory in His presence, rejoicing in His presence, encouragement in His presence because of who Christ is, because what He's accomplished, and because of what it grants us as His children. But I want you to consider, first of all, I want you to consider the provision that was made, the reality of the provision that Christ makes for us. Verses 19 through 21, He says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. We're going to stop right there for just a minute. Confidence to enter holy place by the blood of Jesus. As I said, to enter the holy place, it was, it was something that was, it meant to enter into judgment. It was, a, it was a place that was surrounded by the fear of death. But because of what Christ has accomplished, because of the pouring out of His blood, we don't have to enter with fear, but we can enter with confidence. That is, we can boldly come into the presence of God. We have confidence to enter the holy place. Hebrews 4.6 says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The ability to have such confidence, the ability to enter into the holy place with that confidence is granted to us because of Christ's sacrifice. We enter by the blood of Jesus, verse 19 says. This is the superior offering to that of the temple offerings. Earlier in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4, it tells us that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then in verse 12, he says, But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And why did he sit? He sat because the work was finished. 
because there was no longer a sacrifice that needed to be made. Because the sacrifice that Christ made was sufficient to wipe away sin, to cleanse us and purify us, to make us clean in the presence of God that we might enter into His very presence. The blood of Christ satisfied God's judgment. And it is His blood that we remember this morning when we come to the Lord's Supper. His blood in the cup, the brokenness of His body in the bread. Christ has made for us a new and living way. As we see in verse 20 of our text, it says there, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. That word for new, it's a unique word in the Greek. It only occurs here in the New Testament. It is a word that in other Greek writings refers to newly killed sacrifices. And Jesus, of course, He was a new sacrifice. It was a different kind of sacrifice because He was an all-sufficient sacrifice. But it wasn't that He was just referring merely to a, a new kind of death, but He says a new and living way. See, the sacrifice that Christ made, although He died, He didn't stay dead. He died a death that conquered death as He was raised again on the third day, declaring victory over sin and death. Jesus inaugurated the way of victory, and He inaugurated that way for us. This is a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, which is His flesh. And here we see Christ's flesh being compared to the veil of the temple. And if you all remember, the veil of the temple is what separated the holy place and the most holy place, right? There was the veil, and so you couldn't enter into the most holy place. It, it shrouded, it covered the presence of God's glory, so you could not look into the presence of God's glory because the Shekinah glory of God dwelt in the temple and the veil was put in place so that you couldn't be exposed to it. But when Christ died on the cross, what happened? The veil was torn right? This, this veil is something like some 30 feet tall or something, right? And it says it was torn from top to bottom. So you know somebody just didn't reach up there and tear it. But God himself tore it because God was opening the way into his presence through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And he did it. And it says in, in our text here, he compares the body of Christ to that veil because within Christ was shrouded, was encapsulated, encapsulated the very glory of God, a glory that was revealed in the resurrection. Christ died, and the glory of God was revealed in Him through the resurrection. Excuse me. Through Christ was made possible our entry into the holy place because the curse of sin had been overcome by His sacrifice. Whenever we take the cup and the bread of the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating what Christ has accomplished for us in His sacrifice. Through the breaking of His body and the pouring out of His blood, we are given access into the presence of God's holiness. But I want you to see in the text, he speaks not only that this is made possible by the sacrifice of Christ, but also the service of Christ. Verse 21 says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Now, he doesn't here call him a high priest. Earlier in the book of Hebrews in chapters 5 and 6, he's referred to as a high priest. But he's better than a high priest. He's a great priest. He is our great high priest, if you will. For he not only has made the sacrifice sufficient for our forgiveness, but he now lives forever to make intercession for us. Scripture tells us He ever lives to make intercession for us. That, that's Christ's role. He is our intermediary. He is the one who stands between us and the Father. He is the one that makes it possible for us to come into the presence of God. The, the priestly service was established in order for men to stand between other men and God, in order to speak to God on their behalf, in order to offer sacrifices for their sins, in order to bring men close to God, the priests were instituted to stand between them and the holiness of God. And they had a role to compare that to. But in Christ, the role of the priest ceases to exist. There is no longer a need for a priest. The Scripture tells us in 1 Timothy 2.5 that there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ 
Jesus. He is the only priest that we need to intercede for us. We no longer have to look to, to men to intercede on our behalf. The, the ministers in the church, the preachers in the church, they're, they're not, I'm not any closer to God than what you can be. I'm not, I don't have any special standing because I'm a pastor in order to enter into the presence of God to, to make prayers and requests on your behalf than you do as his children. If you are a child of God, then you are made a priest according to Christ. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We are made priests to God through Jesus Christ. He consecrates us and sanctifies us in order that we might come into the very presence of God. And if an intermediary is needed, there is Christ. This is why we don't pray to the angels. We don't pray to the saints. We don't pray to anyone but to Christ and to our Heavenly Father through Him. As we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper a little later this morning, let me ask you, what have you done with the access that Christ has granted you into His holy presence? Do you enter with confidence and expectation or do you just kind of throw your prayers up hoping that God is listening without any thought of listening to what God has to tell you? You see, when we come into the presence of God, it's not just about us speaking our mind. It's about listening to what God has to say to us. Too often we take for granted the privilege that we've been given to enter into the presence of our Heavenly Father. But God doesn't just want us to realize the reasons for our access, but He wants us to respond to that provision as well. And that's what we see in verses 22 through 25, the response to the provision. First, our first response is to come honestly. Look at verse 22 with me. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. The word translated as sincere comes from a Greek word meaning truth. It defines the relationship between corresponding objects. In this case, it's we draw near to God because our heart is Truly has truly recognized our ability to approach the Father based on the atonement of Christ's sacrifice. Christ applies the sacrifice to us and enables us to approach the Father. That purification is pictured for us in these verses in, in a couple of different ways. He says, here he says, our hearts having, are having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The, the first is a, is a picture of the sprinkling of, of the blood that would take place within the temple, and it was a picture of cleansing that, would, that needed to take place as, as recorded in Leviticus 16.15. It says there, it says, He shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. For our hearts to be sprinkled clean from an evil conscience is the application of Christ's blood to our life. It is our purification. That's plain and simple. When it talks about the sprinkling of Christ's blood on us, it is a picture of our purification through Christ. It is the reality of being born again, we, in, in which we are given a new conscience. We are given new perspective. We are given new direction. We are given new purpose in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, and our bodies having been washed with pure water. This is also a symbolic reference to the ceremonial washings of the priests for preparation of entering the holy place. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 4. He shall put on the holy linen tunic, and the linen undergarment shall be next to his body. And he shall be girded with the linen sash and attired with the linen turban. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. There, this is a purification process that the priests would go through in order to enter into the holy place. We, we have a similar purification process that we go through. We call it believer's baptism. And, and it's just a picture of the reality of what Christ has accomplished in us, that we are cleansed by the blood of Christ. Our public profession of the inward work, which is Christ has accomplished in our heart. Through Jesus Christ, we are made completely and totally clean inside and out by the application of His blood to our lives. So we can come, because of that, we can come 
honestly to God, recognizing that in truth we, we are accepted by Him. And then we can confess hopefully. Look here at verse 23. He says there, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Now, it seems strange to me to think that as we're talking about what Christ has done for us, that we hold fast, that the writer here says, hold fast the confession of our hope rather than to hold fast the confession of our faith. Because most of the time, like look at the writings of Paul, he talks about the confession of our faith over and over and over again. But the writer of Hebrews says, hold fast to the confession of your hope. Well, don't think that they're really that different. Faith and hope go together. Hope, faith fuels hope. Hope is both the product and the driving force of our faith. Romans 5.2 tells us that we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. And then Romans 5.5 says that hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. But what exactly is that we're hoping for? And when we think about the, if we're holding fast the confession of our hope, what are we hoping for? Well, we're hoping for the fullness of of God's promises being revealed to us, right? The fulfillment of His promises. We're looking forward to the fulfillment of His promises in the resurrection, in the future resurrection. We're talking, we're looking for the fulfillment of the outcome of our salvation, the glorification of our bodies, the exaltation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our hope is not only what Christ does for us, but it's also to see Him high and lifted up, to see Him exalted. That is our hope. He to whom the Bible tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ will be glorified, that He is Lord and Savior. And this is not hope that is a wishful thinking kind of hope. This is hope that is a confident expectation of things that will come to pass. When we speak of biblical hope, we're not talking about just something that, that we think might happen. We're talking about something that we know is going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. That's our hope. And so, we can hope because we know, as our text tells us here, that He who promised is faithful. There at the end of verse 23. So we hold our confession of hope without wavering, knowing trials and tribulations must come, but recognizing that God's purpose and promises will be fulfilled, and we who are faithful will be rewarded at Christ's return. And then in verses 24 through 25, we see also that we have a calling to be holy. It says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, there's a whole lot in these couple of verses to deal with, but we're just going to make a couple of observations very quickly as we approach the end of our text this morning. First, I want you to understand the significance of the church in this text. A lot of times in our culture, and in, in especially in a, within American Christianity, we have, we have made our faith something very individualistic. We've made it a private affair. And you know what? The world around us is very content to allow us to live our, out our faith privately. But it's when our faith enters into the public arena that they begin to take issue with it that they begin to mock us, that they begin to ridicule us. They don't want our faith to impact our public life. They, they're okay if we, we believe what we believe and we want to do what we want to do in the privacy of our own homes, in the privacy of our own lives, but don't let it impact them. God does not give us that option. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you cannot follow Christ and not have it impact the rest of your life. If you think you're following Christ and you're just doing it in your own little corner and you're worshiping Him in your own time, in your own space, and you're not impacting the world around you, then you're not following Christ. It is an impossibility to follow Christ and not impact the world around you. Your faith must touch the lives of those around you or you're not being obedient. We are saved to be a part of God's people, the church. You see, we can't do it on our own. He never intended for us to do it on our own. He saved us to unite us with His body, the church. We cannot fulfill His word to us on our own. It's not meant to be an individual thing. It's meant to be a corporate thing. God has given us the church for that purpose. It is the place that we come together to be encouraged, to stir one another up, to, to stimulate one another to good deeds. That's what He says there in verse 
24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. How do you stimulate one another to love and good deeds if you don't come to church? How do you stimulate one another to love and good deeds if you only practice your Christianity in your own little corner of your home? How do you, how do you fulfill the Word apart from the local church? You cannot. The word for stimulate, it's a Greek word that means to provoke, to stir up. We have to recognize our need to stir up the godly passions for one another that God, so that God's purpose in us may be accomplished. We cannot be individualistic in our faith, but we must come together as God's people, as Christ's church, to gather for instruction and encouragement and perseverance in the faith that we might overcome the attacks of the enemy. One of the early church fathers, Ignatius, had this to say about gathering as the church. He says, when you frequently and in numbers meet together, the powers of Satan are overthrown and his mischief is neutralized by your like-mindedness in the faith. That's what it means to encourage one another and to provoke one another to love and good deeds. It means to stand together so that the enemy can't have his way with us. We're told in this text to be all the more diligent as we see the day approaching. There in the verse, at the end of verse 25. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day is he talking about? He's talking about the day of Christ's return. He's talking about Christ is coming for his church. He says we need to encourage each other in that reality. The apostles and the disciples, they lived their life every day as if Christ could come back that day. They fully expected, when, when Christ left, when you read about it in the, in the book of Acts, in the chapter 1 there, when Christ descended, or ascended rather, into heaven, and, and the angel said, why are you looking up there? I tell you, he's going to come back the same way in which he went. And the disciples, they were, just, they were looking, every day they were looking for Christ to return. And as time went on, and, it had, and he hadn't come back, they're like, well, you know, we need to start writing some stuff down. And so they started, so the Gospels got written down because Christ hadn't come back, but they still expected Him to come. And they still encouraged others that He was coming soon. And just because He hasn't come yet, we shouldn't be any less diligent in carrying out the work that He's given us to do because you know what? We're that much closer today than they were. Christ is coming for His church. And until that time, we've been given a responsibility to serve Him and honor Him within the context of His church. To come to Him honestly, confessing our hope. To come to Him recognizing that we are called to a holy calling. To encourage one another. To sanctify ourselves. To pursue holiness. And in all of this, we do in the recognition that He has granted us the privilege of living in the presence of His holiness. The very same Spirit who dwelt in the temple dwells in believers today. We can enter into the presence of God in which we enjoy fellowship with Him, in which our faith is revealed and strengthened, in which we receive instruction from His Word, in which we are encouraged to walk in His way, all because of what he did on the cross and because of what he does now in the presence of the Father. His sacrifice and his service has made it all possible. As we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, we should remember that it is a special celebration of what Christ has done for us. It is a special time for the church to gather and to enter into the presence of the Lord, to remember Christ's sacrifice, to celebrate what He's done for us. And that it's not something that we should come to lightly, but reverently. In 1 Corinthians 11, we're reminded that we're not to partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So what does that mean? It means if you've not publicly professed Christ and obediently submitted to believers' baptism, that you shouldn't take the elements. It means if you're not publicly, if I'm sorry, it means if you are holding on to unforgiveness in your heart 
or if you're engaged in current conflict with a brother or sister in Christ that has not yet been resolved, you shouldn't partake of it. If for any reason you can't partake of it with a clear conscience, you should not partake of it. But if in the confidence of your standing before God, and if in the confession of your sins before Him you are, you are cleansed and in good standing with Him and your brothers and sisters in Christ, then that's where we receive it. The cup and the bread in order that we might enjoy in the fellowship of the body, the fellowship with one another as we fellowship with the Lord in His presence together. I want us to take a moment now just in quiet reflection and prayer. I'm going to ask Jim to come up and just play some music for us as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper. And as we enter into this time of prayer, I'm going to come down front. This is going to be our invitation for this morning. If, you, if the Lord's laid on your heart something you need to confess, you, you're welcome to come to the front and pray. You're welcome to come to me. I'd be glad to pray with you. If the Lord's leading you in some other decision in your life and you'd like to speak to me, I'll, I'll be down here to do that for just a few minutes. But I really wanted to take this time to ask the Lord to search our hearts, to reveal in us if there's any unconfessed sin, if there's any unforgiveness that we're harboring, if there's any conflict that's unresolved that we need to resolve. And let the Lord lead us and convict us and lead us to a place of repentance and confession. Just bow our heads together and just pray quietly. Gracious Father in heaven, we bow in your presence and we thank you so much for the sacrifice of Christ which was made on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, that you continually intercede for us. We thank you that regardless of what we've done, Lord, when we come to you, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that we might come into your presence, that we might come and we might enjoy fellowship with you and with one another as your church this morning. Lord, we pray now as we enter into this celebration of the Lord's Supper that you would continue just to hold our hearts and continue to allow us to rejoice in the sacrifice that was made for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I want to ask...
our men to come forward that are helping to distribute this morning. The Apostle Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Gentlemen.
practices representative of the body of our Lord which was broken for us. He said, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, the Lord took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This cup represents for us the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which was poured out for us, that we might be forgiven and cleansed and made pure in his sight. Let us take it in remembrance of him. Gracious Father in heaven, we rejoice in this celebration this morning. Thank you for your love. Thank you for dying for us, and thank you, Lord, for working in our lives daily 
to help us to know you better, to serve you more effectively, and to make known your name to the world around us. We love you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. What you got for us, Jim? Oh, how he loves you and me. Sing with me. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. Hope to see you all back this evening, 6 p.m. Have a wonderful day. Choir practice tonight, Jim. Choir practice at 5 o'clock.